Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. In late April, President Biden announced he would take a hard look at canceling some federal student loan debt, giving hope to roughly 45 million people in the U.S. locked into a $1.7 trillion crisis. This week on Connect the Dots, we'll uncover the history of the federal student loan program and explore its rippling impact with Josh Mitchell, author of The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe, and with Elizabeth Tandy Shermer, author of Indentured Students, How Government-Guaranteed Loans Left Generations Drowning in College Debt. We'll also hear from a college student and a graduate, both whose lives have been shaped by their student loans. I'm Lauren Barry, and this is Connect the Dots from Odyssey. Dina, a college student at Mills College in Oakland, says that student loans not only changed where she could attend school, but also how she saw her future. When I was looking at grad schools, because right now I'm in Mills to pursue a graduate program, before that I was looking at different general graduate institutions and programs to see which one would benefit benefit me the most in my educational career path. And one of my top schools I really wanted to go to was Boston University. And I applied there, and I also got into Mills at the time, so I was deciding between Boston University and Mills. But for Boston University, they first put me on a waiting list. And then when I got taken off the waiting list, and they interviewed me, and they said, oh, we're so excited to have you in school, that they pretty much gave all the financial aid to other students. By the time I was looked at, that the only thing that I would have been provided was loans. And for their school institution, I think they have $70,000 alone, $30,000 a year. Pretty much, I decided even though Boston University was my dream school, I knew that I could not go to that school because it would have been a financial burden once I would have graduated because I would have like over $140,000 in student loans. Dina, who is currently pursuing a master's to be a child life specialist, knew that Boston University was one of the top schools in her field of study. But she couldn't wrap her mind around the amount of debt the graduate program would put her in. I was devastated because I really wanted to go to that school, and I was really, really looking forward to it, especially since I got on the waiting list. And I was hoping, I hoped that they would at least have something to give me. Um even though it's very added late. But then when I learned that I would not be able to receive any scholarship money, it 
really made me think about like, do I really want to put myself a hundred thousand dollars in loans? Like, especially since I want to have my own life outside of school. So I told myself that I can't do that to myself. When did student loans become a deterrent to pursuing education for students like Dina? So student loans, along with home loans, were not considered a burden. They were, they were considered an investment. That's Josh Mitchell, a reporter for The Wall Street Journal and author of The Debt Trap, which details the rise of the student loan industry from its start as the Higher Education Act, legislation signed into law in 1965 to increase federal money given to universities, to the federal student loan program that we know today. Elizabeth Tandy Shermer has studied how student loan debt affects the finances of the millennial generation. She's also an associate professor at Loyola University, Chicago. She said that before we had federal student loans, universities actually handled loans. Um, And actually, it was really only the wealthy colleges that could do it because it's such a terrible financial product. I'm going to give you (laughs) a loan for something that I can't repossess or sell to someone else because no one can do that to your degree or college credits. And even if they could, that would never give you the credentials to even compete for a better job. Back then, there were far less defaults than we see now. But eventually, the government stepped in and established what we've come to know as the Federal Student Loan Program. The origins of the student loan program goes back to Russia. This goes back to the late 1950s and the start of the Cold War. And basically, when Russia, when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, uh, Congress and Lyndon Johnson, the Democratic Senate Majority Leader at the time, started to freak out. They felt like we were falling behind in the space race. And they concluded that the way to regain the space race was to basically have more scientists and engineers in society. And so they wanted to do this through higher education. They wanted to get more people into college and graduate school. In 1965, Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Higher Education Act. The student loan program did not aim to gather profit from prospective students, but rather to assist in gathering resources for them. When the program first started, the idea was to really help the top academic achievers in high school go on to college. So this notion that everyone should have access to college wasn't really around in the 1950s. It was more like, you know, there are a lot of people who are getting really good grades in high school who are not going on to college because they couldn't afford it. And so the the original idea was, let's just help the smartest people go on to college. Some universities, like the University of California system, wanted state residents to attend tuition-free, but other universities opposed to accepting federal funding because they didn't want the government to dictate their operations, especially institutions that only allowed certain types of students to attend. And also there was a flat-out opposition about we that... Um a lot of academics didn't want to desegregate their campuses. And it isn't even a question of just desegregation that's very important in the South. But there's a lot of problems across the country in campuses not wanting to admit Jews, Catholics, women. (laughs) Imagine that. Those institutions were not the only barrier to offering full federal tuition, and the government sought a way to increase college enrollment without having to foot the bill. But so loans were something that that, um, liberals and conservatives... And they, at that point in the 60s, they were in both parties. They could agree on. But also, there's a lot of powerful lobbyists who are out there who are actually keeping the emphasis 
on the loan program, as opposed to raising Pell Grants, as opposed to more federal investment and state investment that would actually keep costs down. And so that was the idea behind um, student loans, was that this helped families achieve this American dream of entering the middle and upper class of the United States. And so in each case, whether it was housing or student loans, the idea was let's let's give them access to loans to buy something. But what happened in each case is that there weren't enough restraints on how much debt people took out to buy those things. The, the government basically was handing out families and still does hands families a blank check Today, there is no official federal law that limits how much colleges can charge for tuition. In some states, universities are monitored by state law. In others, universities can either raise tuition or raise funds from private donors. And the provider of the service, the college, really doesn't have any incentive to rein in their prices. In fact, it's the opposite. The college and the university has every incentive to raise their prices because they know that all the student needs to do to cover that higher tuition is to go to Uncle Sam, get a blank check, and then all of a sudden the college gets its money up front, regardless of what happens with the student five or 10 years down the road. Both Mitchell and Shermer explain that the increase in loan payments and tuition has had a ripple effect, where not only universities, but also the federal government have profited from the increase in college prices. What I argue in my book is that these impulses started to feed off of each other. As Congress gave families more loans, more students went on to college, and colleges started raising their tuition. And as colleges started raising their tuition, Congress started giving people higher loan limits. And so this became the dog chasing its tail. So when did the student loan program really start to go south for borrowers? Now, the the initial idea was, Lyndon Johnson said this and a lot of other people in Congress said this, let's cover the costs of college for the poorest people in society who are at the highest risk of dropping out of college, who are, you know, don't have a lot of wealth to be, be to begin with. And so the the idea was let's let's give them grants which don't have to be repaid and let's have the middle class take out loans. But economic pressures changed this plan almost immediately after the student loan program was established in the 1960s. At a time when Lyndon Johnson and other members of Congress wanted to give everyone access to college, a lot of things in society were already becoming very expensive. And so they wanted to provide access to college on the cheap. And this is when they started giving loans to people, not just to the middle class, but also to poorer members of society who were at a high risk of default. And so I would I would say that in the 60s, when they started radically expanding access to student loans to anyone, regardless of their ability, their ability to repay them, that's when some of these problems started. And it grew from there as more and more people started to have the ambition to go to college. More and more people got access to loans. Advocates sought to create a reliable system for collecting student loan interest and payments. But despite their best efforts, they failed. There, has, there was an effort since the 70s to try and get the IRS to collect student debt, which makes a lot of sense, right? And especially because it becomes very easy to see who has the income to actually afford it. That became politically unpalatable in, in the early 1990s. 
So, student loan servicers, the intermediaries between borrowers and lenders, began to increase in size and number. The tactics used by these servicers have been known to be predatory, and the largest, FedLoan, recently announced it's transferring all loans it services to another servicer following congressional inquiries and lawsuits regarding its management of loan programs. Problem with these these servicers, and it's been there from the beginning. It's been there from the beginning when they were actually issuing those loans that had that government guarantee for them. There's not the oversight that you need. So all of the servicers have a problem. Not just the ones that's making the big news right now is Fed Loan because that they have just so profoundly mismanaged the public sector loan forgiveness. But all of the servicers have problems. In the 1980s, the ripple effect of student loans took hold when tuition skyrocketed. 1980 was really the line of demarcation here. That's when the era of skyrocketing tuition started. If you look at tuition from the 70s, from the 60s and 70s, it was rising, but not nearly at the rate that we see it now. And so if you look at a chart of, of what tuition's done over the past 50 years, it was right in, right in the early 1980s that it just absolutely started to take off. Now, why did that happen? One is that the economy itself was, was drastically changing. If you look at what the wages of blue-collar workers were doing in the 1980s, they were falling even after inflation. And and if you look at the wages of white-collar workers in the 1980s onward, it did the opposite. They were rising. And it was in the early 1980s, several years after the creation of this beast that I call Sally May, that the student loan program really started to take off. Sally May was established in 1973 as a government-sponsored enterprise that would create, collect, and service student loans. It cut its ties to the government in 2004, but it still services loans. In the years since its creation, loan servicers such as Navient, FedLoan, and Nelnet also became interest collectors for the government. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. How have student loans impacted generations both young and old? And why do we assume that college used to be so much cheaper? And I think for me that the hardest part is that a lot of people want to think about how much cheaper it was back then in the 60s. You've got to be really careful about that because in 1962, the average cost was $7,000, but average household income was $5,600. And so it changes things that that was not actually cheap, especially since family sizes were larger back then. Even so, tuition has become increasingly expensive. According to a report conducted by CNBC, the average price for one year of school at a public university in 2017 
was $9,970, which they estimated as a 213% increase from 1987. First of all, I think it's important to know that that college tuition and graduate school tuition overall has risen at triple the rate of inflation over the past 20 years. And basically since the 1980s, it's risen at double the rate of inflation and more. And so one of the reasons I wrote this book is I wanted to figure out, like, why is that happening? Why are why are schools so easily able to raise tuition? Something seems a little bit off here. And I ultimately argued that the easy availability of student loans with no strings attached when it comes to the college's perspective is one one big factor as to why that happened. So what does that mean for today's average borrower? So the average student debt upon graduation is is. In recent years, it's been between twenty-five dollars and $30,000 for people who borrow and graduate. That's the average. Now, it's important to understand that there is a growing minority of students who owe a lot more, um, $50,000, $100,000. So the average obscures a lot of variation. And there's, there's a there's a growing number of people who owe $50,000. Even after you adjust for inflation, there's a lot more people who owe $50,000 and above compared to the 1990s adjusted for inflation. I've even written about people who owe a million dollars in student debt and above. Now, now those cases are rare, but they are growing. But there are people, and, the, and we, we particularly see this in grad school. Grad school has been the biggest source of growth in student debt in recent years. And that's one of the reasons why you have this growing cohort of people who call what I owe what, and that's why you have this growing cohort of people who owe what I call jumbo student loans. This is like the jumbo mortgages in the housing crisis. You have people carrying bigger and bigger student debt amounts. Now, your second question was, why do people have trouble paying it? One of the reasons why people have trouble paying their student loans coming out of graduation is because their monthly payment is often far higher than what their income is, or at least it's a it's a it's a far bigger share of their income starting income than what they expected. So, for example, in my book, I wrote about a woman who became a psychologist. And so she was making $75,000, $80,000 as a psychologist. Now that's solid. That's a solid income in the early 2000s when she left grad school. However, her student loan balance was $125,000. So even excluding, even excluding interest, if she were to repay that loan over a standard 10-year plan, that would be $1,000 in principal alone each month that she was obligated to repay. So the government enrolled her in a 30-year plan that included a lot more interest than if she were in a 10-year plan. Mitchell adds that while graduate school is a major cause of extreme student debt, there is another reason why so many university graduates have issues paying back their student loans within their lifetimes. There's another cohort that I think is very important to understand. There's a lot of people who went to community college or a six-month certificate program at a for-profit college or a two-year program at a for-profit college or even a four-year program at a for-profit college. A lot of them drop out. And so they last maybe one or two semesters. They owe maybe $8,000, which in the grand scheme of things doesn't seem like a lot. But a lot of these people 
didn't get any type of income boost. Um, there's any number of reasons why people drop out, but they drop out, they have student debt, they don't get access to the job that they were supposed to get to pay off the student debt. So most defaults on student loans occur among this group of people. Once saddled with debt, former students face unexpected consequences from their decision to further their education. For example, there's research to show that a lot of borrowers are opting for careers that might not align best with their talents and their interests, but that they are choosing so that they have a higher income to pay off their loans. Um, I've talked with people that are going into public service jobs, not because they necessarily want to do those jobs, but because they need to take advantage of this program called public service loan forgiveness that forgives debt once they have spent 10 years in a job. Our Connect the Dots executive producer, Mallory Samara, spoke with Eduardo Chaides, who was working for that program. He said that he wasn't prepared for how loans would impact his life when he set out to become a teacher and enrolled in UC Berkeley in his 30s. I wanted a change in careers from landscaping, construction, and I really wanted to become a teacher. Uh, so I went to community college and then I transferred to UC Berkeley where I double majored in art and ethnic studies. I don't think I would have been able to get through school without student loans. Um, it's such an abstract amount of money that I couldn't even comprehend what I was getting myself into. And it felt like, you know, every that's how what everyone else does. So that's what I had to do as well. And, you know, coming from, you know, first generation from deep east Oakland, you know, being the being the first in my family to attend college, you know, I didn't have the resources to attend college any other way except by getting student loans. You know, be when you take out the loans, they make you do sort of a little online course to help you try and understand what you're getting into. It seemed more of a, a box for them to check off than to actually teach people what it is. And, you know, again, especially for me, I, you know, I had no idea what any of it meant. Not knowing anyone else who has taken out student loans at the time, I didn't really, yeah, couldn't quite comprehend uh, what I was getting myself into. So I work for the federal government and there is a public service loan forgiveness program, which very much influenced my career choice. Uh, so after 10 years of public service, you do get some of your loans forgiven. But it's definitely something I think about and worry about. I've talked with people who, for example, will go to work for a nonprofit hospital in one state because that hospital happens to be nonprofit and therefore qualifies them for public service loan forgiveness versus moving to this other state that they really, that they really want to live in or that maybe their spouse has an opportunity to work in. They're almost beholden to their student debts. Increasingly, parents and grandparents are taking on student debt to help their offspring go to college. And that affects retirement savings. There was a really big uh, report that a Senate committee put out several years ago showing that the federal government is increasingly garnishing wages of senior citizens to force them to repay their student debt. And in a lot of cases, the 
social security wages that were being garnished were their only source of income. Shermer said that student loan debt also hit certain groups harder, including people of color and women. It's, it's a, such a complicated thing because families of color tend not to have, as I said before, the generational wealth to be able to actually pay for so much out of college. So they tend to have to borrow more. According to the Brookings Institute, the average Black college graduate owes more than $52,000 four years after graduation, compared to around $28,000 for the average white college graduate. A recent American Association of University Women report found that women on average hold more than $31,000 in student debt, while those with a bachelor's degree expect to earn on average just over $35,000, nearly 20% less than what men anticipate earning. But I think it's so hard for folks to understand why women um, also struggle with their student debt. And it goes back to what we've just been talking about, the question of care, is that women do tend still not to get um, the kind of financial aid packages that keep them from having to borrow. If people from all walks of life are negatively affected by student loan debt, why does the current system remain in place? Well, first of all, there's a a huge cottage industry of loan servicers that the government hires to, quote unquote, service student loans. These are basically private contractors that the education department pays a billion dollars collectively every year to provide customer service to students once they leave college. Even as colleges and universities increase tuition, much of the money going towards student loans doesn't end up in the college's pocket, according to Shermer. College and university doesn't get the interest payments. And because the majority of loans now are coming direct from the federal government, the federal government is actually sort of getting those interest payments, but there's the fees involved for those who are ser- who are actually servicing it. And I think that's one of the most important parts of this story is that the student loan um, giants really built that business off of the original loan program, which guaranteed them repayment, guaranteed them, them those interest rates. But now they're actually still getting a lot of good business by servicing that debt and doing a terrible job at it. The thing about it is, is like, you know, we have predictions of anywhere from a third to half of American college and universities going bankrupt um, by the end of this decade. And that's because the way that we have done higher education. And of course, like all the complicated things going in with how students have to finance the the tuition payments, gosh, it's just a mess in terms of actually having the kind of stable income. The student loan deferment plan put in place due to the pandemic has been extended through August. However, Democrats are pushing President Biden to secure his campaign promise to cancel up to $10,000 of student debt per borrower. If the administration sticks to its promise, how much would it help? You know, one problem is that there's just a whole ton of what I call toxic debt out there already. There's a lot of people who are carrying a lot of debt that they're just never going to repay. And so what the, the first question is, what, what should the government do about that debt? And then the second question is, what should the government do going forward to help families go to college or graduate school? And no one's really talking about the second question. Everyone's talking about the first question. So by eliminating at least $10,000, you would wipe out a lot of people who have defaulted on their loans. And, um, you know, that, that, is a, that is a big cohort of people that would, that would start fresh. On both sides of the aisle, there are politicians who caution against canceling student debt, citing an increase in inflation as one of its implications. Needless to say, Biden is having trouble making definitive steps towards forgiveness. 
And as Mitchell notes, forgiveness alone doesn't solve going forward the the notion that uh, the government is still giving debt every single day to people that it knows full well are not going to repay it. And so we would end up in square one within five years. But I do think that incentives really matter here and that if you really want to solve some of these problems, it's going to require realignment of incentives. And what I mean by that is what I said earlier, uh, you know, when when there was a, a system in place that had lower defaults, that involved schools having more skin in the game and being on the hook for some of these loans if students defaulted. And While Mitchell believes shifting more responsibility to schools is the answer, Shermer thinks the federal government should also take on more of the burden. And that's why I'm really alarmed by calls that college universities should be the ones making these student loans because most of these campuses can't afford to do that, period. Because what it's actually going to take to keep these institutions running and their services um, provided, and the many services, which include the teaching and the research, all these different things, what that means is you need to have consistent local, state, and federal funding to do it. And I actually am deeply in favor of some of that actually coming with a lot of regulations to see how that money is spent. Dina, the college student who sacrificed going to her dream school due to student loan concerns, already had a stifling amount of debt from the loans she took out to get her undergraduate degree at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She, too, hopes to see a more promising future for college students, and that Biden keeps his word of canceling at least some of the student loan debt. I would say that it was worth it to go to the institutions but I do wish that the education system would change and that it wouldn't have to force American people, especially young people who are going to school at 18, 19, not really knowing what, how student loans can, can affect them, you know, years down the road, that they'd have to put this um, burden on, 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 their, on, on people because... Um, you know, I have a dream of going back to school again, maybe to pursue a PhD, but then that, of course, would be a lot more loans to take out of. But then I can't do that right now because I don't want to put myself more in loan debt, especially since there's life where you have to take out loans for, like, if you want to buy a house, if you want to buy a car, you know. But I'm already putting myself in loan debt, so that's going to affect myself on future, on those future purchases, so... They may, not, they may look at me differently than other people. Um, so I'm already putting myself on a hard track when it comes to wanting to build my life. It is a breath of fresh air to be able to hear that our, our uh, government is thinking about canceling student loans. But at the same time, it's a pain to hear that well, the Biden said recently that he's not going to give $50,000 of student relief. And he's thinking about maybe $10,000, but he wants to make it go through Congress and rather just him deciding to pay for himself. And especially with how our, um, our, um, what's it called? People that work in, work in Congress are so divided basically on everything and anything that I feel like that it's not going to get done. So I wish that our president can just do it himself and just say, here's $10,000 for everybody or whatever amount he wants to give to everybody. Just say it's coming from him. So just to not have to make people like me or people like who have more loans than me have to, you know, be waiting for that relief. 
This episode of Connect the Dots was written and produced by me, Lauren Berry, and by Sydney Fishman. With editing by Cooper Mall and additional editing, mixing, and mastering by the show's executive producer, Mallory Samara. Subscribe to Connect the Dots and listen to past episodes by heading to the Odyssey app or Apple and Google Podcasts. For Odyssey in Chicago, I'm Lauren Berry. Thanks for listening. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.